Amen. Thank you, Alan. We are in the midst of our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. We are studying under the subject of unity in the church. That is the purpose for which the book was written. And when we got to the section beginning in chapter 8, verse, uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all about meat offered to idols. And I've told you to properly understand the scriptures and to properly apply them to our lives, we have to remember the context. Um, this is not a question of, of eating and drinking and how I live based on following somebody's rules and regulations. This is not an excuse for legalism. This was a very practical problem in Paul's day because there were idol temples where people could go and buy meat cheaply. Some of that meat was sold in the marketplace. You might go to someone's home and be offered idol meat. That is meat offered to idols. Or you could go and participate in the feast in that idol temple. I told you when I was talking about chapter 8 that I would jump ahead and tell you uh, what the bottom line is this. Paul says, and he hits it again in chapter 10, that's where we are today. He says, if, if you go to the marketplace and you buy the meat cheaply and it means nothing to you, then by all, the, by all means, buy it. Because food is just food. Eating and drinking does not make us closer to God or any more, or more distant from God. It's just food. It's just drink. It means nothing. If it means nothing to you. If you go to someone's home and they offer you meat, you don't ask whether it was meat offered to idols or not. You eat it. And don't think anything about it. But if the person says, oh, you need to understand that it was meat offered to idols. And you realize that their conscience is weak. Now, we're not talking about giving in to Pharisees and giving in to legalists that you have to obey all their rules. We're talking about someone whose conscience is weak. And if you realize that, it's probably better that you don't eat. But it's very clear, Paul says, if you go into the idol temple and you sit down at the table with idol worshipers who are eating that meat because they're worshiping that idol, yeah, you may be free to do that, but you are offending somebody. What if a new convert, somebody who's recently come out of idolatry, what about when they see you in that idol temple worshiping there, even though you don't mean to worship, but to them you're worshiping the idol. What will they think and what impact will that have on your life? I use the example of when we were in Mongolia. I, I saw one of the missionaries. We were visiting a Buddhist shrine, a Buddhist temple, just to see this 90 foot tall, well, I don't think it was 90, it may have been 60 feet. It, it was the biggest idol I've ever seen. Golden statue and one of the missionaries was walking the sidewalk, walkway around that idol, and every time he would come to one of the prayer wheels, without thinking, he would spin that prayer wheel. Ray, think about that. What would somebody who's just saved out of Buddhism think about that Christian who's walking in the temple spinning the prayer wheels? And I told you, that's why I don't like that song anymore. I see a little prayer wheel turning. Where in the world did that come from? 
Well, it's, it's Buddhist for one thing. But, and the same thing is true. If you go to the Catholic Church and, and you partake in the Mass, and you say, well, it really doesn't matter because I don't believe what they say about it. But what about somebody who's been saved out of Catholicism? And they see you do that. What have you done to their faith? It is concern for the weaker brother. Now, that is the context and that is the primary application of this passage. And we need to, make, we need to be careful that we don't use these chapters as an excuse to put rules and regulations on people of touch not, taste not, handle not. Because that's not what the verses are saying. It is a very practical thing for them, and we need to look carefully at how that may apply to us. In finishing this section in chapter 10, Paul does that in writing to the church at Corinth. He gives them three different views that they need to grasp to, in order to make proper decisions about what they're going to do in their lives. Um, I've entitled the message this morning, Watch Your Step, because I believe that's exactly what Paul is talking about. Be careful that you don't think more of yourself than you ought, and you trip yourself or you trip someone else. I want you to notice that, first of all, he talks about the warning from history, and that is the history of the nation of Israel. In giving that history, he talks about Israel's spiritual journey. And you heard Alan read that. Those are the verses that Alan read in our presence this morning. Israel had a spiritual journey, a spiritual awakening, a spiritual revival. He talks about it this way. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Understand that that under the cloud, that was the presence of the Holy Spirit of Jehovah in the Old Testament. And they were led by the Spirit of God. Now we, we talk about being spiritual. They were led by the Spirit, but it took the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. He says, and they all were under the cloud and passed through the sea and were baptized unto Moses. Uh, don't get too hung up on that. Uh, they got baptized, Shelley, and never got wet. God made them stay dry. They had a cloud over them, and they passed through. And, and I mean, they were, Zach, they were surrounded by water. They had the cloud overhead, and God had the water stand up, and, and they walked through on dry ground. A friend of mine was in the Philippines and said that he saw there. Charles, he saw a painting that the Filipino artist had, had made of the nation of Israel passing through the sea, and the water was up to nearly their knees. And he told the artist, if you'll redo that, I'll buy it, but I want to see dust coming up from their feet instead of water. They walked through on dry ground, but it was a picture of baptism, just showing that they're following Moses. And by the way, that's when you get baptized, you are putting on Christ. You are showing that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. But that was a part of their spiritual journey. And, it, and they ate of the same spiritual food. Now, okay, he's talking about food offered to idols, and now he brings up spiritual food. 
that spiritual food for the nation of Israel was the bread, that is the manna that God, it was bread from heaven that God provided for them. And that eating of the bread was a part of the fellowship with the nation of Israel and fellowship with God. All of this is a part of their spiritual journey. And they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Jesus Christ. That rock was Jesus. They drank of the spiritual rock, the living water, the water that gives life, and that rock is Jesus Christ. You have been on a spiritual journey. If you have come to Christ in faith in Him, you have drunk of the water of eternal life when you trusted in Him. That's not baptism, folks. That is your faith in Christ and the washing of regeneration by His blood. He has taken away all your sin and you have partaken with Him. You have fellowship with Him. That is your spiritual journey. Now understand, Paul was writing to a congregation who had walked a spiritual journey. The trouble is now they're faced with something that's causing people to stumble. And it says of the nation, he's reminding them of the spiritual journey of Israel that they failed. They did all those things, but they failed to please God. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them, with most of them, since they were struck down, and that literally means laid out in the wilderness. Their bodies were scattered through the wilderness because they disobeyed God. Uh, Carol, they had that, all these spiritual experiences, but they still rebelled against God. They failed God. And he tells how they did that. Now, these things took place as examples for us. I don't have time to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You, you hear me say that a lot, right? Don't laugh when I say that, Shelly. I know I say it all the time. I hear a lot of people writing off the Old Testament. Evangelicals today are really bad at saying, well, the Old Testament has no meaning for us. We only follow the New Testament. There's two different times in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that he says these things, and he's talking about Old Testament events, are written for examples for us. Don't tell me I should not preach the Old Testament. Don't tell me that there's no practical application from the Old Testament for us today. Paul makes it very clear. Listen, the Old Testament was just as inspired as the New Testament. It may be harder to understand. It may be longer. But it's still the Word of God and it has meaning. That won't cost you any extra this morning. So how did they not please God? For one thing, they began to desire evil things. The lust took over and they began to desire evil things. Not only that, but they became idolaters. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. Listen, this is very practical in what he's talking about meat offered to idols because he's talking about becoming an idolater whether you mean to or not. And if you go in and sit down at that idol temple and partake with them, 
you're, are you becoming an idolater? You need to be careful about that. Be careful when you think you stand that you don't fail, that you don't fall. You became idolaters. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Throughout this book, I've told you again and again that there are two issues that come up over and again, time and again. One of those is idolatry, and it's because Corinth was an idolatrous city, and it's sexual immorality. He has a great deal to say. You may be getting tired of hearing this, but Paul had a lot to say about sexual immorality because that was the nature of of the idol worship in that city, and that was a severe problem in the city of Corinth. And it is a horrible problem in our day. Sex sells. And so advertisements, billboards, books, movies, include sexual immorality because it pulls at our immoral nature, our sin nature, and draws our minds and our souls away from the presence of God and participation, fellowship with God. Be careful that you don't desire evil things. Be careful that you don't become idolaters. Be careful that you don't commit sexual immorality. Be careful that you don't test Christ. Test Christ. Oh, I have freedom. I can do anything I want to. Are you putting Christ to the test? Are you testing yourself? Be careful that you don't tempt God. And then, and don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. They were complainers. They murmured the whole time. Must have been a bunch of Baptists. Amen. Just complain, complain, complain. Don't complain because against your leaders, but Follow the leaders that God has given you. Then he also talks about not only their spiritual journey and the fact that they did not please God. Now he brings it down to the church at Corinth and to faith in LR, to a practical application for us. And he talks about the deliverance that God provides. Yes, there are those temptations, but there is deliverance. He says, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. See, these people were so arrogant about their spirituality. They've come out of idolatry and they have come to Christ. And Christ has done a marvelous work in them. He's already said, some of you were homosexuals, but God changed you. Some of you were thieves, but God changed you. But he's he's saying to them, don't be arrogant and think that you're perfect now and that you cannot fail, that you cannot backslide. Whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Arrogance, spiritual arrogance is dangerous. You, you, You need to be careful. We need to be careful when we point the finger at what somebody else is doing and say, there by the grace of God, go I. I can fall just like they fell. Spiritual arrogance is dangerous. There's also a message in that, that everyone faces temptation. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, common to man. Everybody faces temptation. 
Um, I don't know, maybe when you get as old as Ray McAllister, you, you get beyond temptation, never happens again, but I'm not too far behind him. And I, I got news for you. You never become immune to the wiles of Satan. And you need to be careful. We, I'm preaching to me too, we need to be careful that we don't tempt Christ with our arrogance and think we're above temptation and say we will never fall. Man, I'll never do that. I hope I would never will. But I will tell you, it'll take faith and self, uh, self-control, trusting God, walking in the Spirit instead of in the flesh. We need to be careful when we say we will not do that. Because everyone faces temptation. But the good news is God is faithful to provide a way of escape. You can trust in God. I I love that. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is always faithful. I may not be. You may not be. But God is always faithful. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way a way out so that you may be able to bear it. God is faithful. What's he saying? Watch your step. Watch your step. Be careful. Watch your step. Your past spiritual experience does not guarantee that you won't stumble today. Same thing that they tell you when you go buy stocks. If you invest in the stock market, you look and you see how the stock performed in the past. And there's a little warning down at the bottom that says past results or past experience does not guarantee future returns. Future experience. Be careful. Watch your step. You've come this far in your journey. Do not lose what you've gained. Hold on, Paul says in the book of Philippians. Hold on to what you've gained. Watch your step. Some of us walk pretty close to the line. Be careful. When you walk close to the line, it's really easy to step over the line. Then, he not only talks about the history and a lesson for them to grasp, a warning for them to grasp, about the history of the nation of Israel, something that applies to them and to us. He also is trying to teach them a principle, and this is a deep spiritual principle, that is the participation principle, the fellowship or participation principle. He he talks about fellowship with Christ. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is again a time, and he will talk about it in chapter 11, when he talks about the fellowship supper, the Lord's supper. We call, I I say a fellowship supper, we say communion. You know what communion means? It means fellowship. It is a participation. We, We join together and we use the elements of the wine and the unleavened bread. And when we do that, we are fellowshipping with Christ. Now, I'm not preaching transubstantiation. That means it, that 
fruit of the vine, that wine does not actually become the blood of Jesus Christ, but it represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we drink that together, that is a testimony, a reminder. And we are, in fact, spiritually at that moment participating together and participating with Christ. We are fellowshipping with Him. It disturbs me when church members don't show up for the Lord's Supper. Listen, Brenda and I traveled for 18 years as members of this church, and we tried to be here as often as we could to observe the Lord's Supper with our church, our congregation. And maybe because we were gone so many times when we observed the Lord's Supper and we missed it, we really did miss it. And it, it became very important to us. And it ought to be an important part for our church to observe the Lord's Supper together and understand the participation principle that when you do that, you are participating, you're fellowshipping with Jesus Christ. But then you can also participate, if you're not careful, you can participate with demons. What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idol really is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Uh, I should have underlined and bolded the word no. In the Old Testament, it says, don't be afraid of idols. They can't do anything and they have no power. I think we need to be reminded of that. You don't have to be afraid of idols. They are nothing. They cannot walk. They cannot speak. They cannot act. They can do nothing. But you have to understand the principle of participation. No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, that is the idol worshipers, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Corey is specifically speaking to those people who are so bold in their faith. They say, oh, it doesn't mean anything to me. I can go into the idol temple. And sit down in an idol temple. The idol is right there. The smoke's still, still coming. And, and they bring out the hot meat. And I'm going to eat that meat while it's fresh and hot. And it doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, but you just sat down in a temple that bears the name of some idol god. And that, that idol is possessed of demons. There are demons present. And you, by doing that may be, in fact, participating with demons. That's pretty bold. And we need to be careful to understand the principle of participation. How does that work for me? I've learned a principle from the Word of God, and it helped a bit to leave, live in an Eastern culture. We, we spent a dozen years in Kenya, East Africa, one of the things I saw there, I saw witchcraft where demons had real power. I saw it. You say, I don't believe that. Well, that's okay. Why, why is it more, Mike, why is it more active there than it is here? Although I'm beginning to think it's becoming more active here. It is because whom you acknowledge, you empower. The people there really believe, Charles, in, in, those, in the witches and the, in their power. 
and whom you acknowledge you empower. I was hesitant to even say, to even mention this morning that idols are inhabited by demons. Because I don't want you thinking about that. Because just as sure as we begin to acknowledge those demons, they become more powerful in our lives. Whom you acknowledge, you empower. <clears throat> That's why I don't like those books, uh, uh, Piercing the Darkness and This Present Darkness, if, if you've read those books, talking, Gail, about this demon and that demon and the other demon, talking about Satan and how powerful he is and how active he is. When you begin to acknowledge those demons and when you begin to acknowledge the power of Satan, you empower them in your life. You need to understand whom we need to empower is Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. In all thy ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. You see, whom you acknowledge, you empower. Be very careful that you are not empowering the wrong forces in your life. Who will you empower? Will it be the demons or will it be Jesus Christ? Then he gives a third track for them to follow. A precept that they need to understand in order to make proper decisions. And he, what he's going to do, it is, I've called it the law of love and liberty because he specifically mentions that and, it, and the law of love and liberty is mentioned in other places. But perhaps, Benjamin, I think this is probably the, the part of this that applies to us most practically. This is the part that we can probably grasp. Larry, I think it's an example of how we, three things to consider in any decision that we make. You know, when I, Gail, I talk, Joe, we talk about meat offered to idols. It's a little hard to think, how does that apply to me? But here's one that every one of us can use to decide what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong for me and my walk with Christ. The law of love and liberty. He talks first of all about the prophet principle. That's P-R-O-F-I-T, not P-R-O-P. P-H-E-T. It's the prophet. Is it good? Is it beneficial? He says everything is permissible. Now listen. Do not forget that we began with the fact that we are not under the law. We have freedom. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. I'm free at last. We have freedom. But we need to be very careful how we use that freedom. Because everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Does it benefit me? Does it benefit the church? Does it benefit my weak brother? Am I encouraging? Am I helpful? Am I building up? Or am I tearing down? Everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. We need to use that building up test, the profit test. Is it good for me? Is it good for the church? Is it good for my weak brother? Is it good? Is it beneficial? The second is the people principle. The people principle. 
No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. That is that we're considering others when we do this. Now, maybe I just, I've seen enough legalism that I hate it, hate it almost as much as I hate Calvinism. But again, we're not talking about pleasing the legalists, the Pharisees, the hypocrites among us who use rules and regulations instead of spirituality. Rules and religion instead of relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about young converts. We're talking about people who have not grown. In fact, we're talking about the unsaved. Will what we're doing keep somebody from trusting in Jesus Christ, believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ? We need to live our lives with concern for other people. What, what did we say back in January? Love God. Love others. Reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's the people principle. Am I being concerned? Am I showing care and concern for my weaker brother when I do whatever it is that we're measuring, whether it's right or wrong? And then finally... There is the purpose principle. He says, for whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. The purpose principle. The purpose principle. Our purpose is to glorify God. We've already talked about in, in our sermon series that our purpose, everything we do, should be to the glory of God. You will make decisions, young people, about how you will spend the rest of your life. What will your occupation be? What will your primary search be for? And who will be the person who shares that rest of your life with you until death do you part? You better make sure that you choose wisely. Choose a lifestyle, choose a mate, choose an occupation. Choose your school in a way that will give glory to God. Well, how do I know in eating, in drinking, in where I go and what I do, games I play, people I spend time with, how do I know whether it glorifies God or not? I don't know if I've ever heard this preached before. It's something that came to me in studying these verses this week. It says, David, if I partake with thankfulness... This is verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. Corey, to me, there's a secret hidden in that verse. It is the secret of thankfulness. How do I know whether something glorifies God or not? If I can give thanks for it, if I can give thanks to God for it, it glorifies God. But if I'm doing something that I would not dare thank God for, I should not be there and I should not be doing that. You ever thought about that? If you can't thank God for it, then it probably does not glorify God. That's a good litmus test. And our purpose 
should always be in everything we do, everywhere we go, should be to glorify God. When deciding is something right or wrong, if you can't bow your head and thank God for it, it's not for the glory of God. Listen, we need to watch our step because our bold but careless steps may trip up someone else. What is it that God's asking you to do? What step of faith do you need to take today? I know that we have guests. I know that I am not aware of every one of you and where you are with Christ. Have you followed the Lord? Have you given Him your life? Are you really living for the honor and glory of God? is your faith in Jesus. Have you followed the Lord in baptism? You say, I've been saved. But have you followed the Lord in baptism? Are you a member of a church? A good church? Hey, I know a good church. A good one. Come on, say amen, somebody. And you ought to be a member. Listen, I'm not just pushing my church. I'm telling you, that if you're going to have a good walk with God, live to the glory of Jesus Christ, you need to be in fellowship with the body of Christ, with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What step, listen to me carefully, what steps this morning do you need to repent of? What decisions in your life do you need to turn back from? Are you living to the glory of God or do you need to come back to Jesus Christ in a strong relationship with Him? Or do you need to come to Jesus for the very first time in repentance and faith and trust Him? I'm going to ask you to stand and I want to say to those who are viewing on the live stream, that invitation is for you also. What decision? You, you can't walk the aisle here this morning, but you can get on your knees in your living room or the patio where you're watching, and you can make your life right with God by coming in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. You can commit there, and you can commit here to living a life to the glory of God.